It's an exciting episode this week on the podcast. Carrie and I are joined by two guests. The first is our friend Cheryl. You've met her before. She's been on other episodes with us. And Cheryl actually set up this interview for us. She reached out to this incredibly fascinating, wonderful woman that I could listen to for days. She was a puppeteer. She worked with the Muppets, so Carrie's freaking out a little bit. And she is a Disney Imagineer. She's inspiring, she's entertaining, and she's absolutely lovely. Stay tuned to hear our whole conversation with Terry Harden. Hi, I'm Francine and you're listening to the Pixie Dust Fan Podcast, a podcast where our first topic of conversation will always be Disney. I've been a Disney fan for as long as I can remember and I'm determined to bring more of that Disney magic into my everyday life. So if you need a little extra pixie dust in your day, you've come to the right place. Thanks so much for listening and let's get started. Terry, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We are so excited to have you here. You know, you are an amazingly accomplished puppeteer, artist, sculptor, Disney Imagineer, and you've had one wild career and it's still so amazing. So we are really excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. We are so excited. Now, we've done our research, but Terry, there has been, quite honestly, there's been so much in your career. You've done so many amazing, quite honest, like cool things that we were we were trying to figure out, what do we start with? Where do we start? How do we figure this out? And And maybe we just start at the beginning. You you made your first puppet when you were like I think you were six or seven. You made your first one? <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah, very good. And how do you ding 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 ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> And well, cause we were trying to figure out of all of the all of the things in your career, which one sort of has the most special place in your heart and of course I'm assuming that you know your first puppet would always have a special place in your heart but is there one that you sort of worked with over the years that had the most of you in it yeah in fact uh I made this little shark puppet and I can't find him he's been on vacation I've been looking for him for a while I may have to make a twin of him because uh he's been with me forever and all of a sudden he just up and left Every once in a while, you know, your puppets will do that. But I wasn't expecting my shark because my shark's been with me for a long time. The first puppet I did was a was a lamb chop. And I really hadn't thought about puppets because I was six years old. I was watching TV. I I fell in love with Kruk Lafran and Ollie, Beanie and Cecil, you know, characters like this. But they visually, I don't know, I did, they didn't really resonate with me. And then Sherry had this cute little lamb chop character and the lamb chop character was very sympathetic and I was being bullied because of the way I looked and my hair stuck out in every direction like a dandelion. So I was getting, and I, and I wasn't really athletic in school. So I was getting all it, getting it from all sides pretty much. And so I was sitting in my room and I saw lamb chop and Sherry Lewis was, you know, talking a lot to lamb chops. And I thought, well, you know, lamb chop's pretty sympathetic. Why don't I just make myself a little lamb chop. So I duplicated it. And that became the character that I spoke with when I needed to share some things that I didn't quite know how to tell my parents. Wow. So that's how it started. That's how it started was with that lamb chop. That lamb chop's long gone, but but that's where 
it kind of springboarded when I was six years old that's where it springboarded I think it's so amazing when you think about that it started there and you've had a whole career from something that you fell in love with at six years old like how did you fall into becoming a professional puppeteer like how do how do you bridge that gap between you know a little girl who makes this puppet and then this is my career well Okay, so when I was little, my parents saw that I was being bullied and my father, okay, so my mother's white and my father's black. This is very important to illustrate because mixed race is something that is very important to me. And when I was going to school, if I applied for grants in college or I had to fill out any kind of questionnaires, they had no other box. You had to be black or white. And I really had a problem with this because which parent do you ignore? If I click black, I'm dissing my mother. If I click white, I'm dissing. And the person behind the counter said, you look white, just check white. And I go, really? Seriously? (laughs) My skin looks white, but my hair is nowhere near white. So where are you coming from? And this is the the one challenge that I had. So, So my parents, my father is very wise. He's my hero. If there's one person in the world that has always had my back, it's been my dad. And... My dad always says, poison isn't effective unless you take it. So whenever I would have these challenges, he would say, did you take that poison? Daddy, someone called me the N-word. Did you take that? Did you believe that? And I was like, "Uh, well, I don't know what it is. And he told me another story. And if you're interested in hearing it, I'll tell you that story. But the point is, is, as a young kid, There was a lot of battles. My hair was set on fire in the eighth grade. I had friends with really fast hands. I guess this kid saw this golden mane of hair and thought a match would go really well with it. So he struck a match and threw it in my hair and my friends, um, my friends put it out. And uh, all the kind of things of being uh, kind of a geeky kid, kind of a a little bit of a quiet kid until I met uh, a, took a drama class and then everything opened up for me. So I realized that I loved acting. I loved being on stage and I loved performing. But when my mother tried to get me hired for commercials, because I am from Hollywood, California, they didn't want to have me. They loved my little sister who's three years younger than me, but my little sister looks black or Mm. Hispanic or Hawaiian. I look like, and what are you? And this is what they kept saying. We can't have her on camera. She's good, but we can't have her on camera because people will look at her and go, what? And I think this is one of the things that my mother wasn't sure how to cope with because my mom grew up in a place where it was mostly white people. She didn't really see a lot of black people till she went to college. And the funny thing was the one of the first she saw was my father. And uh, she says he walked into the room and she forgot where she was. She forgot her name. (laughs) So my mom looks up and sees this very (laughs) handsome man. And she says, I forgot I was engaged. And I was like, whoops. (laughs) And uh, one year later, they were married, but they couldn't get married in California. They had to go to Mexico to get married. And uh, because you could not, a white person could not marry a black person back in 1956. And so I was born in 1957 when Rosa Parks was fighting for her place on the bus. And yet I had 
two people that found love at a time when it was absolutely not allowed. You know, so to have these have this in my background and my mother is a very she's a very talented artist, but she had parents who killed that in her. They kept telling her that there was no there was no future for an artist and she better get something where she could earn a living. So they they pushed her to learn office and typing. And and so her painting, she has a lot of doubt because parents are very powerful and they made her doubt. So when she got married to my father, she said, I don't care if my children want to be trash collectors. I'm going to support them. I just don't want to do this to my kids. Well, my father was a dreamer anyway. So the problem is God has a sense of humor and my mother had me. <laughs> and she was 19 when she had me. So a baby herself. But she got this June baby that took her a good 10 minutes to pull all the hair back and find the kid inside. And then once she found the kid, she she tried to comb my hair. That was a disaster. Comb my hair, no. So my dad's, my mom burst into tears. I burst into tears. And she says, I'm hurting my child. So my dad took me uh, with my mother up to see the black half of my family, all of his family. And the woman said, oh, honey, don't feel bad. You're a white person. You don't know how to deal with this kind of hair. Let us show you how to do it. And she pulls out an ironing board and an iron and she sets it on the cotton setting. And she says, come here, baby. She walks me over and I laid my head on the ironing board and she ironed my hair with an iron because back then there were no curling irons. Mm -hmm. So they ironed my hair. My mother said she she freaked. You know, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing to my kid? But she could then get a comb through it. So it was like, she, you know, she was like, what? You know, so there were these challenges for my mother because she just didn't know how to work with this little kid. Then you add the fact I'm extremely curious and I'm an obsessive creative. And I know my mom was just not, my mom says I was a wonderful baby, but she really doesn't remember. So <laughs> two years old, seriously, two years old, I lived in downtown LA and my mom puts me down for a nap. Anybody who has kids out there, you know that as a parent, when the kid is crying in the room, you're going, you're going to have a nap. You haven't been very good. You're going to go lay down. You're going to have a nap. And the kids, wah, wah, wah. And then all of a sudden, your first feeling is, oh, thank God, the noise is done. And then <laughs> panic. you have hey, the this noise thought. Is done. <laughs> <laughs> She's really quiet. Lord, please let her be sleeping. <laughs> and she opens the door to the bedroom very carefully because she, heaven forbid, she wakes me up and the bed is empty. And the window to the outside is open. Oh, and no. I'm gone. Huh. And I'm too. She goes running around looking for me. And she she looks up. And there I am on the second floor of a construction site. And I'm walking on the scaffolding. Oh, my goodness. And my mom goes to yell at me. to Terry! And then she thinks about it and says, what if I terrify my child? So she grabs one of the construction guys. And she points up in the air. And she says, my daughter. And the guy <laughs> goes, holy! <laughs> And the guy grabs me just as I'm about to swan dive off the edge. But, <laughs> but the point.
point is, is you have this very energetic, curious child. And many of many parents can understand if you've got a kid like this, she just didn't know what to do. So finally, one day, my mother noticed while she was painting, she painted in watercolors, that I sat quietly. So she gave me some paper and I started drawing. And my parents realized as long as there was paper for me to draw on, I didn't move. So my mother was like, oh my, this is perfect. Oh, this is just, just, just invest in paper. And so <laughs> stacks and stacks of paper. So what I'm trying to point out to everyone is this. I, uh, if you were to ask Imagineers what you were when you were a child, many of us have realized that we're these little oddballs that do something really bizarre when we're little. So for example, Bob Gurr, who is responsible for building a lot of the, the monorail, the Utopia cars, tells a story of when he was young, he would take stuff apart. He would dismantle your radio, your toaster, your mixer, but he would put it back together and it would work. And he was about seven or eight years old or whatever. The odd thing was he would take it apart and he would build something else that worked. So he would do this as a little kid. Well, me at about age eight, my mom thought it would be cool if we decorated Easter eggs and I hand painted my Easter eggs and she took them into her work and sold them for 20 bucks a piece. And I'm eight. <laughs> so, so <laughs> 14 wow. 148 gingerbread houses with custom boxes for all my friends. So it was just these wild, crazy things that nobody told me I couldn't do. And probably if they told me I couldn't do, I wouldn't have listened to them anyway, because my parents were so, so supportive. And, uh, and so the challenges that I had, my dad would say, you have to look at it. My dad was the first black telephone man in Hollywood, California. And they said, you got to have a water off a duck attitude. And so my dad said, okay, I, I think I can do that. He was pulling wire at a radio station in Hollywood, KMPC radio, and five white guys approached him. He was sitting on the floor and five white guys came up to him. Now you have two ways of looking at this since you're sitting on the floor and they stood around him and they looked down on him and they said, hey, and he says, hey, what's up? Now you could say this is a scary moment, but my dad said, let's just, you know, find out what they want. Mm -hmm. And they said, have you ever worked in radio? And my dad was like, what? <laughs> have you ever worked in radio? He said, no, no, no. And they said, would you be interested in working in radio? And my dad says, uh, don't know, I've never done it. Don't know how to do it. Don't have any knowledge of it. And they said, well, well, what if somebody were to train you free for free? Just we, you know, and my dad said, sure, I'd do it. So they said, okay. They said, then we want us, we want to send you to school to work at this radio station. And my dad was like, why me? And they said, oh, well, um, we need to hire black people and you're the only <laughs> black guy we know. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. <laughs> so, I always wondered why I walked through the door of opportunity. When opportunity opened its door, I just walked through it without thinking. That's because I got it from my dad. I was going to say, I feel like it runs in your family. <laughs> Me and my dad. Me and yeah. my dad, we don't have that little voice that says don't, or you can't, or you're not worthy. That belongs to my mother and my sister. 
both of them cornered the market on the I'm not worth it or whatever. And they might not say it out loud. My sister is one of the smartest people I know in the world, but they seem to be in their own way. And if you're an artist, you know, you know, you, 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 Hey, why don't you come and design an attraction? Uh, Hmm. <laughs> you never, you always what if just I say fail? yes. You just say yes. You just say yes. But but what if you fail? There are people out there that go. But if I fail, what I questions start to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, my sister was also an Imagineer, and she she called me one day and I said, "Look, I just got hired at Disney as an Imagineer, and uh, and are you interested in working for Disney?" And she says, "Well, what would I do?" She's an amazing photographer. What would I do? I said, "How about photography?" She goes, "Well." I don't and I go, well, let me just check with, with Disney and see if they need a photographer. Well, oddly enough, I see this lady, she's walking around, she's taking pictures of all our models. I'm working on Disney's, uh, uh, I'm working on Disneyland Paris at the time. I'm building the Big Thunder Mountain with another person and I'm getting ready to do Dragon's Lair. So I'm sitting in this area and I'm sculpting it and I see this woman taking pictures and I say to her, hey, what's the take to get a job like yours? And she says, funny, you should say that. And I said, really? And she said, because I'm leaving. Oh. I said, you're leaving? She says, yeah. She says in a couple, she says, don't tell anyone. But she says in about two or three weeks, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm, I'm done. And I said, well, hey, would you mind telling me when you're about to go and when I can approach your boss? Because I'd like to pitch my sister. She says, no problem. She says, I'll tell you before I tell them. So I'm like, okay. So she came over to the model shop, sure enough, and she said, look, I'm going to give my notice today. And so she says, wait till tomorrow and then come in and, and, and tell them about your sis. So I did. And the boss said, I'm not interested in your sister. And I said, why not? You haven't met her yet. And he was <laughs> like, she's your sister. And I'm like, oh, so like I'm going to tell you someone who sucks because she's related to me. That's what you're saying to me. Is that what you're saying to me? And he's like, okay, all right. I said, so here's what I want you to do. Disneyland, Disney is very imaginary at the time, very difficult to break through that front wall. Mm -hmm. I don't care what it is. It took me forever. I'd like you to just promise me you'll see her. You'll bring her in. So all I'm asking, you give her a live first interview. After that, if you don't like her, no harm, no foul. I'm not going to be upset. But at least get her in because it took me more times than I want to even say enough rejection letters that I hated Mickey Mouse. <laughs> You're not worthy. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> get lost. And they didn't even know me. <laughs> so I'm like... I'm like, this is ridiculous. And then when they finally gave me an interview, they asked, where have you been all this time? <laughs> and I said, stupid me, I was knocking at the front door. I had no idea I was supposed to go in the back. <laughs> so <laughs> I go, huh? But that's exactly what happened. So I did not want this to happen to my sister. So long story short, she got the job. But uh, if I told you how long she worried... You know, where I just, I strut, she tends, she tended to worried. And it's, it's, it's my mother. It's just like my mom. My mom has all these reasons why she can't. And my sister just gets overly busy. I'm too busy for, you know, I'm too, and I'm like, you know, 
you're so talented. You've got, I mean, we're, it's the pandemic. You're at home. What are you going to do? How about we get back into the, what you are so good at? And um, you cannot, you know, you cannot force a person to do it. But what a shame to be that person who is consistently in their own way. And, um, and I just want you to take a look at yourselves if you're that person and take that leap and listen, it's, it's not going to hurt. If you fall, just pick yourself up and dust yourself off. God kicked me a lot before <laughs> I got to be an Imagineer because wanted to know if I was worthy. So, you know, kick to the stomach. Are you going to get up? Are you going to lay down and give up? You know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm not kidding when I can say I can wallpaper my 1500 square foot home with rejection letters from this company because they just didn't get it. You just kept trying and trying. Yeah. And, and here's the thing for a cup for about, I got so sick of hearing this mouse tell me no, that I said, you know what? I'm going to put this over on the shelf because that sometimes happens in your life. Sometimes you got to step away from what you're looking at and just give it a little time. So I went to work for a friend of mine who builds these walk around characters like Charlie Tuna and uh, Smokey the Bear and McGruff the Crime Dog and Sparky the Fire Dog. And I was sculpting heads for these characters for my friend. And then he was casting them up and then people would wear them. So if you've seen McGruff and you've seen all them, those heads. In fact, I built a um, woolly mammoth for Mammoth Mountain. And that skiing mammoth is still up there skiing. <laughs> and that was years ago. I rebuilt the head a couple of times, but that's wow. You know, wow. so that skiing mammoth I did for my friend. And I was building something else when a guy walked in. And he said, Terry, what are you doing here? And I said, I said, well, I'm working on some stuff to help a friend until I become an Imagineer. And he said, really? And I said, yep. And, uh, and he said, uh, I think I can get you an interview. And that's how I got hired. He walked me right in the door and they were desperate to start Paris. That was 1987. But your question was puppeteering. So that is sort of the Disney journey. The puppet journey happened when I was a young girl and I went to a class in college and my teacher said, I'm going to know if you're a puppeteer, if you've been bitten by the puppetry bug in two weeks. And in two weeks I had made 14 characters and she looked at me and she said, you haven't been bitten. You've been molested. <laughs> it's a puppet a day <laughs> and so she started to train me I did uh, giant puppets for Teatro, Teatro de los Puppets I built 40 foot puppets I, I got uh, I got to audition for Sid and Marty Croft they had this huge uh, uh, cattle call and I was one of three women 30 people but only three women made it and uh, I trained with some of the top puppeteers and June Foray taught me voices and, and all kinds of, cra I mean, when you think about it, you're like, I sat with June Foray as she sat with 30 of us teaching us how to work our voices to do voices. At the time, you don't think much about it. Yeah, mm. she did the squirrel and the blah and the blah. But now that I look back, I'm like, holy, holy cats. <laughs> You know, we didn't just study voices. We we studied voices with June Foray, wow. you know. 
And because my dad worked at a radio station, he said, my girl, my daughter's really good with voices. Wow. And so <laughs> Mel Blanc sent me a tape of all his voices and a keep going kid. Mel Blanc. What? You're like, excuse me, what? <laughs> and I'm sitting there. I mean, it just, key, it was those kind of things. When you open the door, the floodgates happen. A step in any direction, even if it's the wrong one, creates creates momentum. And the momentum is amazing. But as a young person, I didn't know any different. I'm swimming in these waters and I'm meeting these people and I'm I'm learning from them and I'm asking questions and it just kept happening. And, and it wasn't anything extraordinary. I just, one seemed to lead to the other. So in 1982, I had been helping a guy named Tony Urbano. He's a very brilliant West Coast puppeteer. And I had been helping him and he flew me to New York to do a Chicken McNuggets commercial. And Jim Henson came around the corner and saw a woman and his eyes bugged out of his head. Now, I didn't realize why his eyes were bugging out of his head. I look different. Most people's eyes bug out of their head when they see me. So, so <laughs> it just didn't affect me. And, uh, and Jim came around the corner and stuck out his hand and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm Terry Harden. And he said, a puppeteer. And I said, yep. And and Tony said, what she's with me. And I said, no, I'm not. You haven't called me in forever. He says, how long have you been doing puppetry? I said, since I was sick. He says, oh, six. Oh, my God, he says. So you came to what? Meet me? And I said, well, frankly, no. <laughs> and he was like, no. And I said, I've been watching your show. I love your show. I'm so excited to meet you. But Tony said you weren't going to be here. So I'm very excited to meet you. But what I really want to do, if you if you really want to know, here's another problem. No catalytic converter on my mouth. <laughs> Jim Henson, if you really want to know who I really want to see, I'd love to go down to your shop and find out how you make Miss Piggy. <laughs> and he, really? I said, yes, because I build. And I can figure out how you did Kermit. And I can figure out some of the other characters like Fozzie and Rolf but how the heck are you making Piggy and Bunsen and Beaker? I can't figure it out. He says, well, let me take you down and show you. And I soon found out that these characters were flocked. They used flocking to, to cover them. And a, an electromagnetic gun, if you will, glue on the car on the foam, and it makes a little hair stand all up, and this is how you get these nice little... <laughs> I was just blown away. I said, oh, my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. What? And he's like, he's like, well, I'm, I'm glad I made you happy. And off he goes, you know, and looking at other things. So I'm going down at the time he was in New York at a shop called Ha. And I'm going down the spiral staircase and a door opens, true story. And somebody puts their hand in my pocket and then the door closes. And when I get out, I look and it's a, it's Jim's business card saying, call me when you get back to the States. Wow. Really wild. 82 this was literally another door opening <laughs> yeah. and this one i closed okay here's the thing that's weird this was a really weird one jim called me and said i want you to come to new york and i said no and people go no you said no to jim henson yeah i said no to jim henson because i did not like living in new york it was too noisy it was too it was too frantic i couldn't sleep i said jim i can't perform well for you if i'm living in manhattan it's just, it's, mm -mm. I'm just there two weeks. I didn't like it at all. And he said, well, what makes you think you can work for me if you don't live in Manhattan? And I said, Dave Goles lives up north here in California. Steve Whitmar lives in Baltimore. 
Atlantic City for Kevin Clash. He goes, boy, you've really done your homework. I said, I'd love to work for you, just not in New York. So he said, okay. So he hung up the phone. And then in 1989, when he sold the Muppets or whatever he did to do Muppet 3D theater for Disney, he called me back up. Well, now I'm working at Imagineering building Splash Mountain Tokyo at the time. And uh, he calls me up and he says, Terry, I'm wondering if uh, I'm coming to California and I want you to audition for Muppet 3D theater. And I said, okay. And he said, and you better be good because no one says no to Jim Henson. And I said, bring it on, buddy. So I auditioned for him. And then he asked to see my portfolio because I was a builder. And up until the day he died, we were designing a show, which is still mine. So I could actually create it and, and move forward with it, which I'm thinking about. But uh, it was amazing doing Muppet 3D Theater. It was great. It was the first time I had ever been hired being a woman for being hired just because of my ability. In the, on the West Coast, most women got hired if they needed a female voice. Otherwise, we, they hired men. And that's just the way it was. But I didn't really think about it until Jim came to town and hired me and hired me because of my skill, not because I could do a really cool voice. So that was really fantastic. So that's where the puppetry started. And the nice thing was Disney was a little, uh, Imagineering was a little, you know, delayed. We had a few things. So they just loaned me to Walt Disney Pictures and I got to do Muppet 3D Theater. And then once I was done with Muppet 3D Theater, I went back and worked back at Imagineering. So it was very, it was really a nice eclectic now. That being said, if you go and you believe what people say, Disney pigeonholes you, you get locked in one position and you can't get out. They don't pay well, blah, blah, blah. This may all be true, but don't go in with that attitude. Mm -hmm. Go in and say, where are my opportunities? I was brought into rock work where I was sculpting rocks and mountains and sculptor said, that's gotta be the most boring job. <laughs> well, have you ever sculpted rocks? Because they're not boring, they're very difficult. And uh, it's a lot of fun to master something that is so difficult. But I was always open for other opportunities. I did voices for Disney. I did Foley for Disney. Whenever they had other things they wanted to, they wanted to do. And we did uh, Halloween. And Halloween, whenever Halloween came, everything stopped. And we had this huge competition. So I always made sure I had really elaborate costumes <laughs> that made people ask questions. Roy Disney saw I did a, a zebra warrior where my hair was in a mohawk painted in a zebra mane, but the helmet was a zebra I had sculpted. And when I took the helmet off and threw it to Roy <laughs> Disney, it floated like a feather. Oh my God. And he was like, what the hell is this made out of? I said, ah, ah. <laughs> Do you ever look back on your career and think, I can't believe, like, all of these people, were you ever so starstruck? Like people now must be like, we're starstruck with you, but how were you starstruck with them? Or did you just, they were Robin just people. Robin Williams. It's really funny. I met Robin Williams and I was starstruck, but it was weird. Okay. Starstruck. 
because I was working in the sculpture department. So my goal to be at Disney was to be in the sculpture department. And I had to work my way there, but I never lost track. And I got in there. I did the rabbit for uh, Florida, the little rabbit that rides the front of the Splash Mountain boat in Florida and also rides in Tokyo. I sculpted him. That was my entrance that once they saw that I could, okay, you're in. So now I'm in the sculpture department. Uh, I was there for a little bit when um, Valerie Edwards, who was the department head of the sculpture department, brilliant, like third or fourth generation mega sculptor. There wasn't anything this woman couldn't do. And she was probably, you know, a third my age or whatever. She was just amazing. And she came in and she said, I need your help, Terry. She said, uh, she she there was another sculptor and he was an amazing guy named terry azumi he could he could draw pictures with his left and something different with his right it really is wild to see somebody do that it's a very unusual ability what you use it for i don't know but it was really cool <laughs> dazzle your friends it's like the art equivalent of like rubbing your belly and tapping your head <laughs> yeah but it's it, you know Anyway, Terry was this brilliant, is a brilliant sculptor as well. And he was doing the sculpture for Rob of Robin Williams for Circle Vision Theater, but he was on vacation. And the Disney elite came to Valerie and they said, we want to create uh, another piece. We want to work on another piece of this and we need it now and we need it fast. So we want you to do it. And Valerie said, well, that's kind of Terry's project. And they said, well, we're very sorry. We can't wait for him. So Valerie came into me and she told me the whole story. And she said, you're so fast with foam. Would you carve Robin Williams portrait out of the foam? How quick can you do it? I said, oh, I'm probably gonna have it done by today or tomorrow. And she's like, really? And I said, yeah, why don't you bring him in tomorrow? I'll be ready. And she says, you know, don't do it perfect. We were protecting Terry's ability mm. to finish. Okay. Right. We were just protecting him. We were buying time for him to get back. And, right. and I knew that's what Valerie wanted. And I was more than happy to do it. But Robin Williams came in. Robin Williams comes in to see it. And he's bouncing off the walls. And I'm thinking, this guy needs a pin cushion. He needs to be, he needs some weights. He's bouncing all over. And, uh, and he came over and he liked the piece and we talked a little bit and we chatted a little bit more and off he went. Well, years later, uh, I was at a, a Screen Actors Guild event where he was talking about one hour photo. And I mean, it had to be about 10 years later, maybe Circle Vision had, had he was all the voice from Circle Vision. He had done the genie and done all this stuff. So afterwards, I went up to, in, to, to remind him of this, this time. And I became a bit shy because his bodyguards told me no. So I stepped back and my husband said, you never do that. Why did you do that? And I thought, I don't know. But my husband walked up and he said, don't you recognize that girl? She's the one who did your circle vision. And he went, oh, my God. And he ran over and he grabbed my hand and he said, it's OK. And then he took us off to the balcony out at the director's guild and we talked for about 45 minutes just reminiscing about the past and everything but i was it's the one time i was hesitant because the guards said no don't and i didn't want you know to get anybody in trouble right but that's when i realized that i gotta not worry about that if i know him i know him and you know it's gonna hurt their feelings more so i think that was the one time i was hesitant i live in hollywood so understand that I don't really go fanboy on people. Mm -hmm. I really am more like they're my colleagues. I did 
Captain Eel with Michael Jackson. And uh, I teased Michael Jackson mercilessly. <laughs> I mean, he never, <laughs> he teased me too. <laughs> wow. But we were more like a couple of bratty kids that you had to go, okay, I'm going to separate you two if you don't calm down, <laughs> you know, as opposed to. And then we were friends up until the day he died. I worked at two other productions with, for him and wow. and uh, built a lot of stuff for him. It was really, it was great to to. I wasn't a fan of his when I did Captain EO. I thought he was good. I thought he was talented, but but my my focus was in kind of a different direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, but when I met him, I sure became a fan. I mean, once we had the chance to sit and talk, I I just wow, you know, an amazing amazing human being. It's, and uh, oh, I remember going to lunch with him one day and saying to him, you know. You're, 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 this is 85. So he was on fire in 85. Oh, yeah. With Pepsi, almost literally. But, uh, <laughs> but the point is that he, he really was. He was, he was this amazing, he could, he could do no wrong. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went in to eat lunch on the Captain EO set. I wanted a little peace and quiet. And uh, I heard somebody when I walked on the set and I said, Who's there? And he said, He said, Terry? And I said, Michael? He said, yeah. And I said, do you need me to leave? I usually eat lunch here. He says, no, 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 come on. So we sat on the steps where underneath where the witch says, bring in my troops and uh, had lunch. And while we were eating, I said, Michael, you know, I was wondering, I got a really personal question to ask you. And he said, what's that? And I said, I said, "Uh, if I were a genie, and I came down and I said, for all of the things that you've done for people, you've brought such joy, such magic. I can't not dance to one of your songs. I can't not feel good at a lot of the stuff that you've done. I said, what What three wishes? I'm going to give you three wishes. What does, what does Michael want? I said, honestly, if you landed on the moon and there was a moon man, he would walk up with an autograph, go, Michael Jackson. I mean, you know, every, everybody knows you. So let's talk about what does Michael want, you know? And he said, nobody's ever asked me that question. I said, well, then call me nobody because I'm asking. And uh, the first thing he wanted was was to get his childhood back because he had been a hit singer at four years old. And after that, his parents, I think, worried too much. He couldn't climb a tree. He couldn't, you know, tussle and get dirty. And he said the second thing is he'd love to go shopping at a mall and not have to buy it first. So he asked, he had to buy the entire mall in order to shop in it because there was just no way. And the third was to walk amongst people and not be noticed. Just walk amongst everybody and not be noticed. The moral of this story for everyone out there is for all the riches that Michael had, for all the talent that Michael had, all he wanted to do was be you guys. Mm -hmm. He dreamed of being you. Wow pretty it's pretty earth shattering it is when you think about that that that's what he wanted and he rick baker who is an amazing makeup artist uh gave him that last wish he wish he he made him up as a jew little old jewish man and he walked along the beach and people he would bump into people on purpose and they'd go get away from me you old man and he just loved it oh he just loved it so <laughs> isn't it amazing what can make you happy it's just it's just unbelievable. So no, there's not a lot of people I'm overly intimidated. I am surprised. 
I had told Michael that Elizabeth Taylor was one of my favorite actresses of all time. So three days later, they're pulling me out of the geek characters, the two bird characters, which is what I did, Idy and Odie. And I'm sweating. I look really terrible when you're inside <laughs> a puppet. You're not that attractive. Um, and uh, he said, Terry, he said, he said, I want you to meet someone. And true story, I turned around and it was Elizabeth Taylor. No. Oh my goodness. And I am, <laughs> ah, you know, <laughs> ah, ah, trying to dry my hands and make sure I don't look like, oh man. I said, oh, and she leaned forward and she smiled and she said, Michael tells me you're very talented. I'm like, oh my God, you know, just, I just lost it. And then she signed my, at the time they made laser discs. So I have an autographed laser disc from her and I have an autographed laser disc from Michael. And uh, that's all I, that's, that's the only thing I just wanted to wow. remember that, you know, so. What a so, memory. Yeah. But I, but to answer yeah. your question, Francine, I had <laughs> a, a, a amazing man, Joshua Schaefer. He did a chronology of my life. And after I read it, I said, who the heck is this girl? <laughs> <laughs> She's done so much. I was like, what? And he, and I'll tell him a new story and he'll go, oh, I have to put an addendum. I have to put that in. I don't have that in there. You know, so he. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I know you, you've talked about some of the people you met. Is there someone in your career that really you feel changed the trajectory of your career? Like it was one moment where you think this is it. They inspired me. They pushed me forward. They gave me the kick I needed to to go ahead. Is There's there... a few. Hmm. There's a few. But the big, two big whiplash moments, as I like to call them. First was in the eighth grade. My drama teacher said, even earlier. Okay, so let's go back to my grandfather, my dad's father, who looked down at me and said, all men have to work for a living. A wise man plays for a living. Never forgot it. That's the first one. The second one was Miss Deborah Livingston. And I wish I could meet her today because she was a life changer. In eighth grade, she looked at me and she said, Jack of all trades, master of none, except for in your case. And she says, you must not specialize. You must be special at all the things that I've seen you do because everybody loves a bargain, Terry. <laughs> and you're gonna walk up and they're gonna say, what else do you do? Or they're gonna look at your stuff and they're gonna go, holy cats, I found Kmart. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. With army knife, here she comes, you know? <laughs> and I never forgot that either. It was just phenomenal. But then in 1977, my boyfriend took me to a little film called Star Wars. And you remember that scene in Jaws when he realizes there's a shark in the water and Roy Neary, the room stretches? Mm -hmm. That was my room stretching moment. When I sat and watched Star Wars, I don't think my mouth closed the entire time I watched that movie because... I had been told that there was a good chance my everything that I had done. And by then I had made costumes for my neighborhood, built all kinds of crate, done all kinds of crazy dolls I had made. I had just done tons of stuff. It was all over. 
they just kept saying, but where are you going to use it? And then I saw the chess scene in Star Wars and I went, oh, just the light went on and the room stretched and I couldn't breathe. I could not breathe. And I said, I've got to see this movie again. So I won't go through the whole thing, but I wore different costumes and stayed in the bathroom so that I could see this movie over and over again. <laughs> the first week of Star Wars, I saw it 67 times. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Uh, it's crazy. Isn't it crazy? And I was like, what, 18 or something crazy? And I just did it. I mean, who does that? Oh, and I was draw. I was sitting in the chair and I was sketching and I was writing down every name in the credits. That was my big goal because we, we only had newspapers. We had no internet. We had no computers. We had, we had not even VHS, you know? So I was writing everything down because I was determined to do this in the, in the film industry. And then I heard there were these conventions where you could meet some of these people and I started digging through the paper and I finally, I finally, uh, uh, 1980 comes along and I say, I want to get the first ticket. I've seen this movie 181 times. I want to see, I want to see, I think I should get Empire first. I think I should get the first ticket. So I stood in line for three days for that. I'm writing a book right now about this experience. Everybody's like, I've got to read this. Please write this all down, these stories. Yes. But basically, uh, after that, I met Rick Baker. He was he was talking. I had found out he was going to speak at like SCUSC or something, uh, Southern University of Southern California. And I waited till the end. And I said, Mr. Baker, I said, I just need to know how I can break into the film industry. I just need to, I need to be working for the film industry. I need to be sculpting for the film industry. I need to be creating these characters for that. And he said, okay. I said, I would have asked in public, but it's really, really self-serving. <laughs> I, I really didn't ask for everybody. I want to ask for me. And I didn't think it was fair because you only have so much time, but now I'm not going to let you go until I get this answer. And he started laughing and he said, well, the first thing you need is a portfolio. And I said like this, and he flipped through and he kept saying, holy crap. What the, how long have you been? What the, oh. and, and we became friends. And the next thing you know, I was working on a really terrible movie, but I was working with a guy who worked on star Wars and it just kept unfolding and unfolding and unfolding like origami. And I, I, you know, I, I somehow got on Dune with uh, David Lynch and I built uh, the still suits for all of the characters there, not just Terry, there's a team involved. So <laughs> the still suits, Terry Harden. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. So, so don't read the credits. You're not, you're not gonna see it there. But after that, I went and did Ghostbusters. I went over and I applied to Ghostbusters and the guy looked at me and he said, do you think if, a, if I put a girl puppeteer in the terror dog that Sigourney Weaver turns into that it'll be feminine? What do you think I answered? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> did I know? No. <laughs> I got up there and made this dog move around and the guy says, that's wonderful. And it was my first job, Ghostbusters. I went on to build the Marshmallow Man with my friend Bill Bryant and a team of those people, puppeteered the face, and then also worked on Team Librarian Ghost. So Ghostbusters was my first hit film, and I didn't even know it was a hit when I was doing it. Oh, my goodness. You know, so it's crazy stuff. Crazy. 
I, I feel you know. like I don't even know where to, like, <laughs> I have about a hundred questions in my brain. Isn't it mind-blowing? You just have to do a sequel to this. I, I this feel is like, like part one, everybody. I, we will be back. I think that's it. I think that was part one, and we have to do a part Only two. Only if you want to. Oh, 100%. <laughs> That was the first half of our interview with Terry Harden. She has so many incredible stories to tell that there was no way we could make it all into one podcast episode. It just had to be two. In the next one, Terry is sharing more of her incredible stories, things that she's done throughout her career, her experiences, people she's met and talked to. Harrison Ford, can I say Harrison Ford? And more so than any of that, Terry leaves us at the end of the interview feeling more inspired. Cheryl, Carrie, and I are just, at the end, we just want to go out and do more. We feel like we can do anything after talking to Terry. She just has that effect on people. And if you'd like to hear more from her, you're going to want to find her on terryharden.com. Follow her on Facebook, YouTube. All of the links will be in the show notes. And of course, I look forward to you hearing part two of our interview with, with Terry. If you'd like to support the podcast, make sure that you're subscribed wherever you're listening to us. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and, you know, share us online. Tell people about us. Help us spread the word about the podcast. We would really appreciate that. It's the best way to support us. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, remember, you are never too old to be young. Chase your dreams and design your own happily ever after.